0: You may like a beer with your curry, a gin with your bat watching, a glass of wine with your bath, or maybe you don't drink at all. Either way, humans have been consuming alcohol for millennia. Today's topic is a request from my dear friend, Rachel, who is partial to a Prosecco. And I'm using this opportunity to say, Rach, I'm really sorry, I don't actually like Prosecco, but I didn't want to be rude. Let's hear a bit about the surprising history of alcohol. I'm Natalie, this is Across the Ages. So the first notes I made for this episode read Apes and that Primates eating fermented fruits to get smashed According to Dr Kimberly Hawkins and Professor Robin Dunbar who have written an entire book on this topic About 10 million years ago our African ape ancestors were eating fallen fruits on the forest floor many of which would have started to ferment and get all tasty and boozy At the time, ape populations were struggling in the face of competition with monkey species which were able to eat unripe fruit which apes, like us, find difficult to digest. What seems to have saved at least one line of apes was a genetic adaption that allowed them to process alcohol, and the history of human obsession with alcohol begins. Around 11,000 BCE, our ancient ancestors were living at large in the Paleolithic, which is also referred to as the Early Stone Age. At this time, early humans had been living in caves or simple huts and lived as hunter-gatherers using crude stone tools. They cooked their prey, which included the mighty woolly mammoths, using fire. They also fished and collected berries, fruit and nuts. They'd not developed agriculture yet. But in 2018, a research team led by archaeologist Lee Lu discovered that at a cave site in Israel, they did have beer. I just want to reiterate this point. They didn't even have agriculture. But they had beer. How insane is that? Before this discovery, it was thought that the history of brewing beer went back 5,000 years to 3,000 BCE. And this predates that by 9,000 years. What a fucking day it must have been for those archaeologists. The site itself is a burial cave in Haifa on the northwestern coast of Israel. And it's thought that the beer was brewed for ritual feasts to honour the dead of the Natufian people. Not only is this the oldest brewery ever found, but it is also the oldest record of man-made alcohol in the history of the world. Their findings support a hypothesis proposed by archaeologists, like, 60 years ago, that beer may have been the motivating factor for the original domestication of cereals. Beer before bread. It wasn't just like, oh, we found one piece of pottery that has traces of ancient beer on. They found shitloads of it, suggesting quite an extensive beer brewing operation. I wonder if it was really a microbrewery ran by Stone Age hipsters. The beer itself, though, wouldn't be the golden, clear nectar we have today. The Stone Age beer these guys were drinking probably looked like thin porridge or gruel. Ugh, what an incredible discovery. I don't know why I find this so exciting, but it just is. Even though no one wants to be the number two of something, the next oldest evidence of alcoholic drinks is from China, where a fermented beverage of rice, honey and fruit is dated to 7000 BCE. It's like, oh, whatever, we found beer brewing from like 4,000 years before, this is well late. No, it's not. In 7,000 BCE, you could walk from mainland Europe to Great Britain, as at the time it was just a peninsula hanging onto Europe. You'd know it's bloody ages ago when you start talking about geology. So we've moved from the oldest alcohol and the oldest beer brewery to the oldest winemaking. So by 6,000 BCE, we're no longer in the Paleolithic, but in the Neolithic. These guys had well and truly cottoned on to the advantages of farming and to an extent binned off their hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a more sedentary way of life. They'd started to domesticate animals, had super fancy polished tools and had made significant advances in art, house building, pottery and weaving. So the oldest winemaking evidence is found in Neolithic villages in southern Georgia. They found pottery decorated with grapes grape pollen in the site's soil, and chemical analysis revealed tartaric acid which showed wine residues, apparently. The researchers didn't find many grape seeds or stems preserved in the village's soil, so they think that the wine was made in the nearby hills, close to where the grapes were grown. They reckon that it was a seasonal drink, as there was no evidence of any preservers found in wines in later periods, such as pine resin, to make the wine last longer, so they had to neck it before it spoiled. <laughs> Beer is the oldest recorded recipe in the world. The ancient Egyptians first documented the brewing process on papyrus scrolls around 5000 BCE. These first beers were brewed with things like dates, pomegranates and other indigenous herbs and were probably quite bitter by today's standards. Brewing was a sophisticated art in Phanaronic Egypt, that means old as fuck Egypt, and beer was deemed a necessity of life. Osiris, the god of life and of the dead, was also the god of wine! In ancient Egypt, wine was considered a potion of renewal that was mostly imported for the wealthier classes. Both beer and wine were integral to life, tied to health and religion. Alcohol consumption was widespread, and for pleasure, nutrition, medicine, religious ritual, remuneration and funeral purposes. I had to Google remun... I want to say remuneration, that makes more sense, but this says remuneration. Anyway... It means that people were paid in alcohol for work done. Seems obvious, but reading it threw me right off. Wine in ancient Egypt was predominantly red. Due to its resemblance to blood, much superstition surrounded wine drinking in Egyptian culture. Shede, the most precious drink in ancient Egypt, is now known to have been a red wine and not fermented from pomegranate as previously was thought. Residue from five clay amphoras in Tutankhamun's tomb, however, have been shown to be that of white wine so it was at least available to Egyptians through trade, if not produced domestically. Around 2600 BCE, Queen Puabi was the Queen of Sumeria, which is in modern day Iraq. Her tomb, which was found by archaeologists in the early 20th century, was absolutely full to the brim with objects made of dazzling gold and precious metals including a magnificent golden headdress which I encourage you to Google because it is something else. I might actually do an episode on incredible grave finds so I can talk about her more, but for now, let's talk about the beer straws. Don't think of nasty plastic straws that kill turtles and should be outright banned, but think of giant metal straws used to drink beer out of a big vat. You see, Sumerian barley beer was unfiltered so had a film of sediment on top that you don't want ending up on your lip. That's not a good look for a night out that anyone wants. Three straws of gold, silver and copper encased in lapis lazuli were found in Queen Puabi's grave. I once had an ex that insisted that I drink a half pint at the pub, because a pint was not ladylike. Imagine his horror seeing Queen Puabi drinking out of a vat the size of a German shepherd. As well as the straws, Queen Puabi was accompanied to the afterlife with hundreds of gold and silver goblets which were thought to have held wine. The hot dry climate of southern Iraq made it difficult to grow wine grapes, but as we know, the elite people of society can pretty much get anything they wanted, and Pawabi wanted wine served with her beer. Have you heard of Hammurabi's Code? No, it's not a code written by a gorilla, but a code written by an ancient Persian king of Babylon. It's one of the earliest and most complete written legal codes, which consisted of 282 rules, establishing standards for commercial interactions and setting fines and punishments. By 1720 BCE, we've been consuming alcohol for almost 10,000 years, so this forward-thinking guy thought it was probably a good idea to get it regulated. It'd be interesting to know whether it was a single incident of someone pissing him off that he just went, Fuck it! "Zaidu, get me a bastard pen! Or more accurately, a reed stylus. Hammurabi placed strict requirements on tavern keepers to avoid serving alcohol to criminals. This seems pretty straightforward. But how do you know if someone's a criminal? Does this mean that once the person has finished paying a fine or received their punishment, they're no longer a criminal? I had a little lucky-lucky at some of the punishments for crimes set out in this code. If you slandered a married woman, you got branded. Imagine if this was the case now. The tabloid industry would be as decorated as anyone who's big into the body modification scene. The punishment for a virgin entering a tavern? Death. An interesting one to be able to prove. Sir, <laughs> you were caught in a tavern and rumour has it that you are a virgin. Please tell us where the clitoris is and you'll be spared. The, the what? Igigi, get the rope! Incest with your own mother? Burning. Is that death for the son or daughter or death for the mother? Either way, how the hell is this so common that it made it into a list of 282 things that were common enough to get in trouble for? Fucking grim. Anyway, I digress. There were no penalties for drunkenness. In fact, it was not even mentioned. The concern was a fair commerce in alcohol. Although it was not a crime, the Babylonians were critical of drunkenness. Hammurabi's code was carved onto a massive black stone which is over seven foot tall and weighs four tonnes. So it was less get a fucking pen and more go find me a massive ass piece of diorite the shape of a finger and get ready to carve. Sorry, I just wanted to do that by voice once. Let's take some time to learn about Greek gods. Well, one Greek god, but who's counting? So, the ancient Greek god of wine was called Dionysus. On one hand, this boozy boy brings together joy and ecstasy. On the other, chaos and misery, reflecting both sides of wines and therefore alcohol's nature. He was a god who stood for the untamed nature of life. He wandered the world, actively encouraging his cult. Mainads, women who had been driven mad, flushed with wine and known for their cries of oi, accompanied him. I wonder if they were just doing a big conga line like da-da-da-da-da-oi. The followers achieved a state of ectasi- ec- 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 ecstasy, which is where our word ecstasy comes from. And they were famously outrageous. There's a play called The Baquet that my dear friend Natalie told me about, and this is the well-known story about this god. She studies ancient Greek literature and is absolutely my go-to for everything Greek gods. Dionysus goes back to his home city, brings his court of women with him who go to chill out in the mountains. No one recognises him, the king certainly didn't. The king's more interested in figuring out why these women were a bit mental. So eventually Dionysus drives all the women out of the city, mad, and they end up in the woods, but they're pretty chill having a good time. He tells the king that the best way to spy on them is to dress up of one of them, blend in and stuff, so that's what he does. By this point, the king is also losing a bit, poor sod, and he ends up like a perv at the top of a tree, spying on these women. Dionysus casually points out the weirdo in the tree to his posse, and they tear down the tree and quite literally tear him to pieces. One of the group is the king's mum, and she rips off his head, too manic to realise what she's doing. This story seems like it's serving quite a clear warning of the dangers of wine extra cool fact, Dionysus is where the two phases of theatre come from. Nesithius, who was a Greek physician in the 4th century BCE, continues this theme of happiness and sadness, saying, The gods revealed wine to mortals to be the greatest blessing for those who use it correctly, and for those who use it unregulated, the opposite. Everything in moderation, friends. Considered a therapeutic agent for the body and the mind, for men and women, wine was widely prescribed by physicians in classical Greece. For farting, bad breath, cancer, wounds, and if you're having trouble pooping. Beer was so important in the Iron Age that even children drank it. Beer was shared around at feasts and tankards were passed from person to person. It wasn't just about the fact that they were big drinkers. Water at the time would have been dangerous as people were chucking their weight into rivers. And who wants to drink water that's had shit in it? Not me, and not the Iron Age people. Beer and mead was brewed which burnt away all the poop particles. I'm sure that's the science of it. The people of Iron Age Europe left no written records behind to tell us their story, but a lot of excavations show that these ancient Europeans were all about the drinking. All sorts of drinking vessels in graves around Iron Age hill forts have been found, suggesting people's favourite mugs were so important in life that they wanted to stay together in death. The more powerful you were, the bigger your drinking vessel was, and in turn buried with. One vessel found on a site in Germany was a gigantic cauldron that would have been used to serve a huge amount of alcohol at once. The excavations show that these Iron Age people imported some grape wine from the Mediterranean, but they also mixed honey based mead. They made an ale that, because it lacked hops, would have to be drank almost immediately after it was prepared. Who spit would you rather have in your wine? An old man or a beautiful Virginia woman? I know the answer is fucking neither, thanks, but the ancient Japanese opted for the latter. In 300 BCE, the Japanese were making rice wine. But rice doesn't have natural sugars in it to start the fermenting process, so they figured out quite a novel way to get the fermentation started. It was spit. The Japanese ruling class dictated that saliva must be from that of hot maidens, let's assume they were definitely adults, giving mouth-chewed sake, the more palatable alias, bajinshu, which means beautiful women's sake. Sake, although called rice wine, is not wine at all. It's actually made by a fermentation process similar to beer. Grapes have a high sugar content, so if they're shoved in a bucket and left in the sun for a while, yeast from the atmosphere will convert the sugar into wine. But if you leave rice in a bucket in the sun, the result is warm rice. Rice and other grains are largely starch, so a starter bacteria or fungi is needed to break down the starch in the sugar to be later converted into Alcohol. The enzymes in saliva acted as the starter. Feel free to find this out yourself. Grab a cracker and chew on it for a bit. Eventually it will start tasting sweet. Ancient Nubians occupied modern day Sedan thousands of years ago. So we're talking around the years between 250 and 500. They not only consumed beer at a young age, but made sure that the beer had health benefits for the young and old. Research led by anthropologist George Armelagos and medicinal chemist Mark Nelson undertook chemical analysis of bones of ancient Sudanese Nubians. Oh, bloody hell, that was a sentence. It showed they were ingesting the antibiotic tetracycline, cichline, tetracycline on a regular basis, likely from a special brew of beer. Even a skull belonging to a four-year-old were full of tetracycline, suggesting that they were given high doses to the child to try and cure him of illness. The find is the strongest evidence yet that antibiotics were previously discovered by humans way before Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin in 1928. The Nubians left no written record that we can decipher, yet, so we don't know the recipe. Just like modern day, gold was revered by ancient cultures. The bacterial colony that would have floated on top of the beer was golden coloured and must have looked pretty damn sparkly to ancient Nubians. It's theorised that this would have encouraged the Nubians to continue brewing beer with this golden film on top. How amazing is that? The Mayan civilisation reaches its peak between 250 BCE and 900 CE. Have you heard of butt chugging? (laughs) I hadn't until I start looking into this. The Mayans fucking loved butt chugging. But what is it? Drinking alcohol is so the least efficient of way to imbibe. The cheeky Mayans decided to take it anally. Cheeky. That's right. They had alcohol enemas, usually self-administered or by what I'd hope was a very liberal friend. Syringes of gourd and clay were used to get the fluid up your butt. Unsurprisingly, the enemas often resulted in some pretty violent nausea, an element of the ritual that shows up a lot in the Mayan images at the time. These are mainly ceramics, and I encourage you to search for some pictures because they are hilarious. Vomit was apparently not a problem. The Mayans appeared to believe that this was cleansing, and that the enemas and vomiting were a key part of the purging that you needed to get close to the afterlife. Not content with just butt alcohol, the Mayans were also getting high off toads. Reports by the 16th century historians say that the Maya added tobacco and the dried skins of a common toad in the Bufo genus to their alcoholic beverages to make the drinks more potent. The saliva glands of the toad species in this genus produce toxic substances called bufotoxins, which also have psychoactive properties. The historical use of psychoactive enemas was known throughout the Americas and is still used by some traditional societies today. Skull! In Assassin's Creed, Valhalla, Haller, one of the regular challenges across Viking Britain is a drinking competition. You grab a drinking horn and see if you can down four horns worth of ale faster than your shit-talking opponent. Alcohol was central to Viking culture. Their gods drank heavily in Valhalla, which was what, a big-ass celebration hall where the dead went every night to feast on roast pork and mead. Best of all, beautiful blonde Valkyries served it. The Vikings enjoyed mead, ale, wine and beer. The archaeological record of the Nordic lands is full of drinking vessels, brewing equipment and images of happy drinkers. Although they prized mead, they drank mostly ale. Attempts to reproduce a Viking brew have yielded a whopping 9% alcohol drink that was dark, sweet and malty. (music) Christian Europe emerged from the Dark Ages as a heavy drinking culture. No medical prescription was complete without it, nor was any meal. Mothers brewed ale for their children. Alchemists used spirits in their search for the secrets of how to turn things into gold. Priests held wine aloft in chalices at services and declared it to be the blood of Christ. And drunkenness was just another one of those things. To be honest, I couldn't find a huge amount from this era that I found interesting enough to look into further, other than loads of people everywhere were drinking loads of wine and beer all the time. Between 1700 and 1760, London was obsessed with gin, popularly known as the Mother's Ruin. You couldn't move for the stuff and it was available on every corner. In 1730, an estimated 7,000 gin shops were turning Londoners Londoners into alcoholics. We start to see loads of accounts of violence, widespread addiction and social devastation. For many working class Londoners, who basically led shit lives with no money, gin became more than a drink. It fought the feeling of hunger, offered relief from the cold, and was a way for poor people to forget about the horrible cesspit that their lives were. It was a cheap tonic that could be had for pennies on any run-down street corner stand. As you can imagine, this became a potent mix for trouble. The gin distilled in London was strong, and very often full to the brim with impurities. We're not talking botanical-based gorgeous tasty gin here. It was more of a throat-burning, cough-inducing devil fuel. Turpentine spirit and sulfuric acid were common additions, and tales of blindness among those who frequented the gin shops in the overrun London slums were not unheard of. The infamous signage above the gaslit cellars read, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for two pennies, clean straw for nothing. The assumption was that after spending more than a few pennies, you'd be so smashed that the only option would be to pass out on a bed of straw. There's a really good episode of In Our Time that is all about the gin craze, so if you want to know more, I'd recommend you go and listen to that. It's a BBC Four podcast with Melvin Bragg. Prohibition in the United States was a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation and sale of alcoholic beverages from 1920 to 1933. Moonshine was originally a slang term for strong liquor that was and continues to be produced illegally without government authorisation. The name was derived from a tradition of creating the alcohol during the night time as to avoid detection. Illegal distilling accelerated during the Prohibition era. Within a week after Prohibition went into effect, small portable stills were on sale throughout the country and bootlegging became widespread. In the first six months of 1920, the federal government opened 7,291 cases for violations. By 1921, the number of cases had soared to just over 29,000 and would keep rising dramatically over the next 13 years. I always assumed prohibition was a couple of years. I never realised it went on for so long. You know what wasn't restricted? Grape juice. Let it sit for 60 days and you've got wine with a 12% alcohol content. Vine Glow was sold for this purpose and included a specific warning saying that if you leave this juice out for 60 days, you'll get wine. So you better not do this exact thing, guys. Bootleggers quickly discovered that running a pharmacy was a perfect front for their trade. As a result, the number of registered pharmacists in New York State tripled during the Prohibition era. To prevent bootleggers from using industrial alcohol to produce illegal beverages, the federal government ordered the poisoning of industrial alcohols. In response, bootleggers hired chemists who successfully altered the alcohol to make it drinkable. As a response to that, the government required manufacturers to add more deadly poisons. New York City medical examiners prominently opposed these policies because of the danger to human life. As many as 10,000 people died from drinking denatured alcohol before prohibition ended. With prohibition in effect, alcohol generated tax revenue was immediately lost. At the national level, prohibition cost the federal government a total of $11 billion in lost tax revenue, whilst costing over $300 million to enforce. Just give the people what they want. Across cultures and in different time periods, alcohol has consistently been a major part of the way humans socialise with each other. It's part of our human history and one that I had no idea was so extensive when I started looking into it. Next time you're sitting down with a pint, Pims or prosecco, think of all the people before you who have done exactly the same. Just try not to stick it up your ass. And that's your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it and to get a shout-out in a future episode, leave a five-star review. I actually got to number 24 in the history charts for Finland, so kitos to the people of Finland. Five-star reviews this week, here we go! Uncle Vinny says, Natalie is irreverent, curious and witty as heck, though she'd use a more florid expression if she were me. I love these episodes and look forward to many more. You've made me Google two words there, Uncle Vinny, so thanks for the homework. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Across the Ages or you can like my page on Facebook at Across the Ages pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic across the ages.